Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to our Resurrection Sunday service. It's great to have you with us. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful day outside. It is, uh, it is fantastic just to be together again like this. We're getting into the hang of this a little bit, aren't we? This is the third Sunday that we've had in lockdown, third Sunday that we've been streaming uh, the service from our uh, living room here. So uh, we're, uh, we're enjoying doing it, and I hope that uh, you're enjoying this incredible day where we remember the, the fantastic news of Jesus rising from the dead. We've been doing daily devotions, by, uh, basically in the book of Philippians. Uh, so this morning, though, we, what we want to do is just take a small diversion because it is uh, Resurrection Sunday, because it is time to just think specifically around what Jesus has done. We, we meditated on the cross on Friday, and then today what we want to do is just look at the resurrection, what the resurrection has achieved, both for us, but, both, but also in the, in the grand scheme of the biblical narrative. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them. We're in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 18. It's Romans 8, starting in verse 18. And I'm reading from the ESV. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only the the creation, but we ourselves who who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the, for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray before we get into this and start uh, chatting about it. Our Father, we, we give you thanks for this morning. We th- give you thanks for this, this time where we can remember the wonderful, uh, wonderful work of your son Jesus as he both died on the cross, but more specifically on this first day of the week on Resurrection Sunday, we remember that he rose from the dead, that death could not hold him down. And as we look at this passage, Lord, I pray that we would see the, the majesty and the, and the incredible results of the resurrection and because of that uh, that incredible fact we have this wonderful and incredible hope so we just ask that you would bless our time i pray that you'd bless uh, all of us as we as we listen and as we meditate i pray that you would uh, guard my mouth from error so that i wouldn't lead anyone astray 
And I ask for your blessing in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I think back uh, over the history of my life, I can think of and I can remember three specific days of pain. Uh, three specific days that were, uh, were highlighted by an intense amount of pain. Those three days were in June 2003, and then there was another one in September of 2004, and then a couple of years later, uh, another one in February of 2007. If you're doing a little bit of math right now, you can, and you know our family, you probably realize that those three days uh, equate to the uh, birthdays or birth dates of our three kids. And to be fair, those three days of pain uh, probably weren't a whole lot of uh, pain for, for me. It was more pain for Sonia, of, of course. Uh, but I remember uh, being there in the room and the, and the experience that, I guess, in some ways, that shared experience of what is uh, some, I guess, otherworldly pain. It was, uh, it was quite phenomenal. Again, it wasn't so much me. I do remember, though, uh, Sonia holding my hand as, uh, as, as some of the contractions happened, and uh, she squeezing my hand with some superhuman strength at, at some points. Uh, I remember saying at one point, I can't, you, you can't believe how much my hand hurts at the moment, and then... Uh, then, of course, realizing how stupid that was to say right at that particular moment. But those, those three days of pain, they were, they were painful. And yet on the other side of that pain was something that was glorious, something that was amazing, an incredible gift of life was given. And the pain, uh, and of course, I can't tell you firsthand, but I can tell you from, from the, what Sonia tells me, uh, the pain quickly melted away. And it quickly faded from memory as, the, as this child was put into our hands and we got to just enjoy that child and, and look at it and just uh, and be amazed at what God had done there. And I think as we look at this passage in Romans 8, I think we're going to see, hopefully, by the end of this time, I think that we're going to be able to see and get a sense of the amazing hope that we have on the other side of the suffering in this life, on the other side of the, the pain, the, the sickness, all those things that are going on in this life. I hope we'll see some of the glory that is to, to come and that glory all because of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's have a look. What I want to do uh, over the time here is just ask four questions going to ask four questions of this passage uh, and then hopefully that will start to give us a bit of a picture of this hope and you can see on on the screen behind me this uh, this hope that has been revealed in this passage so the first question up is what do we hope for what do we hope for the uh, um, and perhaps we can get that up on the screen there what do we hope for we often, uh, on this earth, we often place our hope in all sorts of earthly things. Uh, we, we place our hope in our health. We place our hope in financial security. I know in the Western world, uh, financial security is a, is a big thing that we, I guess, place our, our hope in. Perhaps we place our hope in the government and the structures that the government uh, is putting in place. And I guess in the current situation with the coronavirus just wiping its way around the world, um, health, financial security, and government systems all seem to be failing us to some degree. Um, but this passage, 
this passage has a, a future glory that is to be revealed, this future hope that is yet to be revealed. And uh, as, uh, as a passage tells us, it's a future glory that is so glorious that the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to. That's in verse 18 there. So what do we hope for? We hope for a, a future glory that is so glorious that the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to it. So this future glory is, is something where all of glory, or all of, all of the glory of heaven is going to be revealed to us. And then I, I realize that that can kind of just sound like words coming out of a preacher's mouth. And some of the, sometimes words like the glory of heaven kind of roll out pretty easily. But clearly, but clearly what Paul is talking about here is a glory that, that, that should be something that should excite us. Because when he compares it to the current sufferings that are going on, he makes a really interesting comparison. And think about, think about where Paul was at. He was living in the first century and the suffering that he was going through and the, uh, the Roman church was going through and, the, and Christianity in general was going through. Those, some of those sufferings were pretty incredible, pretty intense. You know, there was the, the persecution to the point of imprisonment, sometimes death, definitely exclusion from the wider society. And in, a, in all of that, he says then, when he compares it to, to those, he then says it's not worth comparing. Uh, this is not, so this is not like a pound-for-pound pound kind of comparison here. It's not, uh, it's not uh, the, there's X amount of, of negative stuff that's happening here and then there's going to be an the, the equivalent amount of positive to happen in the future in heaven. No, this is the, what he's saying is that this is just not worth comparing. You know, we go to work uh, and, and hopefully uh, we are, we're able to get back to a, uh, a normality of work pretty soon. But we go to work and we, we go through the, the toil of work and we, then we get given what is hopefully a fair value of pay. There's a, there's a fair value there in terms of the work that we might call toil. Some of you enjoy your work. Some of you might call your work suffering. Um, and, uh, but there's an equivalent, hopefully, there's an equivalent pay that is given to you. I remember uh, in my younger years, I spent a summer uh, in the horse stables with a shovel in my hand. Uh, and my job was to shovel equine residue you might say um, and the, that was my job and it was and to be fair in the heat of suffer doing uh, in the heat of summer doing that job it really was well I would have called it suffering and yet the the pay that I was given uh, was probably cl pretty close to minimum wage at those in those days uh, the 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 pay that I was given was at least I thought in, at the time equivalent enough for me to be able to go through those sufferings and then have some sort of reward at the end but again this idea dollar for dollar pound for pound this is this is just not what Paul's talking about he's saying that these sufferings that we are going through sufferings that that he was going through the Roman church was going through and the sufferings that we are going through here in the 21st century than nothing compared to the future weight of glory that is to come. There's absolutely, there's no comparison there. It's not like our suffering is worth a weight of 10, for example, and that's just going to be taken away for our, from us in the future glory. And it's not even that if we have a, a, a suffering with a weight of 10, that we're going to be given a future glory with a weight of 10. 
No, he's saying they're not worth comparing. If we've got a suffering with a weight of 10, whatever that is, then the future glory is, is 10 trillion. The, the, the amount of glory that we are getting, uh, uh, that, we are t- that is to come, is just completely not worth comparing. So that, let that be an encouragement, because many of you are going through suffering at the moment. The uh, environment that's around us is causing some suffering. There's some job loss. There's some financial hardship. Others are going through health issues. Others have just lost loved ones in and amongst a time where we can't have funerals. All these things are going on. Uh, you are going through, some of you are going through some pretty horrible suffering at the moment. So can this be an encouragement to us? Because that means the future hope of glory must be phenomenal. Yeah, when, we, when we're thinking about these sufferings and, and uh, Paul says that they are just not worth comparing to the future weight of glory that's to come, the future weight of glory must be phenomenal. So what do we hope for? We hope for a future glory that's so glorious that the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to it. So that's the first question we've asked. The second question I want to ask is, why do we need hope? Why do we need hope? Well, I think part of it is that our rebellion against God is actually the base reason for our su- for the suffering in the world. And, and maybe a little bit more than that, our rebellion against God has made this world futile to the point where even creation groans for it to be made right. I think that's on your screen there at the moment, but I'll read that again. Our rebellion against God has made this world futile to the point where even creation groans for it to be made right. That word futile there, it means it's, uh, it's kind of the idea of losing uh, something losing its purpose. So, uh, so creation or the, or the world, creation has lost its original purpose and it groans for it to be made back to its original purpose and to regain its original purpose. And we're told there that how much of creation is groaning, how much of creation is, uh, is being, being made futile, well, verse 22 in the text there tells us that the whole of creation, all of creation, all of us, all parts of the world, we might have thought in New Zealand uh, uh, and perhaps in the wider Western world that we might have been immune to some of this suffering. And then along came coronavirus. And then we, and we realized that, uh, that the suffering is all over the world. Uh, we think of uh, probably the... Um, one of the leading lights in the Western world, the United States, at the moment, uh, their biggest city, New York, just absolutely being ravaged by this coronavirus. And to see the pictures of, of forklifts carrying dead bodies and putting them into, into the backs of trucks, refrigerated trucks, it's just something that uh, comes, it would, would come out of a Hollywood movie, it would seem, rather than a, a simple news broadcast. So this, this suffering, it is re- real. And so we are waiting for this redemption from futility. Interesting though, though when, we're, when we're talking about this question of why do we need hope, there's probably a, a question underneath that, a, a further question we need to ask, and, and, uh, and that is, who was it that subjected this creation to futility? Who was it that created? And let's have a look at, and grab your Bibles again, and let's go back to verse 20 and 21. And let's read it again. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. There we go. So there was someone who subjected this creation to futility. And that was, and and so it was done not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from bondage 
to corruption and obtain the freedom of the future glory of the sorry of the glory of the children of God. So someone has subjected this creation to futility. Now we know if you are familiar with your Bible, if you're familiar with the with perhaps the uh, the Sunday school stories, you know when it happened that this creation was subjected to futility. It happened in Genesis three. When the fall happened, what we call the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, they ate the fruit that they were told not to eat, and the fall happened. So back then, if we're asking the question, so who was it that subjected the world to futility? We've got three options. Uh, there's three, well, there's four people, but, but two of them are up here. Adam and Eve are up here, so we'll call it three. There's three options. We've got Adam and Eve there. They're one actor in that, in that narrative, in that original fall narrative. There's Satan in that narrative and then there's God in that narrative but these verses here tell us whoever it was that subjected the creation to uh, to this futility they did it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God so we got to ask the question who subjected it to fertility with that hope in mind was it Adam and Eve now I, I don't think Adam and Eve had that kind of uh, that kind of end game in mind. They weren't thinking, I'm going to sin here so that, uh, the, so that for the hope that the creation itself will be set free and that um, we, will have, uh, we will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I don't think they were thinking that. When we look at Satan, clearly he wasn't thinking that. He wasn't looking forward to a, a great time of, a gl- of glory in the future for the children of God. So clearly it was God. It was God who subjected the creation to futility. It was God who allowed creation to go into the stage, in Genesis 3, the stage of futility. So therefore, it's, the, it's part of the master plan for us to ultimately obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I think you need a really, really high view of God for, for this to be able to to. Uh, to click into place for you. I think you need a really massively high view of God to, to think about the fact that he was re- prepared and ready to put the, all of creation into this state of futility for many thousands of years in order for us to then obtain a future glory that is, that is even greater than what was happening back then. Think about it this way. It seems that um, it was better for us to go into this state of fall and the state of futility and then obtain a future glory than it would have been for us to be like Adam and Eve and perhaps just stay in that sinless state and just walk through all of eternity in that sinless state, never knowing this futility that, that, uh, that is happening at the moment. And God's master plan, and again we have to have a really high view of God and his ultimate sovereignty and his wisdom and his perfection in his master plan God figured that it was better for us to dive into this period of futility and then come out of it to a future glory that would and this futility would make that future glory just so uh, incomparably glorious and so uh, we we look at this hope that we that we need because of this futility that God seems to have um allowed us to go into and thought it best for us to go into but it's interesting verse 23 then carries on and tells us that it's not just the creation that has been subjected to the futility but we ourselves have a look at verse 3 and not only the creation 
But we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of son, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we too are just groaning inwardly. We want this, we want this restoration to happen. We might, have think, we might think, though, that we who have Christ in us, us as Christians, when we have Christ in us, we might have think, thought that, that Jesus took the curse for us on the cross. And then so that the, this curse of creation here has been lifted from us. We might have thought that we were somehow uh, above this futility. But it seems that verse 23 there says that we are still under the effects of the curse. We live in this period of futility. We live in this period where, yes, Jesus has accomplished it all on the cross and he has accomplished our, our life in the spirit by his resurrection, but everything is still not yet made right. We're still waiting for that. We're still groaning for that. It's interesting, it's, uh, if you are keeping an eye on social media at the present in this, uh, af- after having a good few weeks of lockdown essentially around the world, uh, social media is is really turning, particularly the younger generation. Everything just turning to to proclamations of everything just being futile, uh, and and what what is life worth? What is life? Why is life worth the living if this is what life is about? We see how how uh, this world has put its hope in health. It's put world has put its hope in financial security. As this world has put its hope in just lifestyle and being able to enjoy life. And when those things get taken away, suddenly this world doesn't have hope, and it everything seems futile. So, why do we need hope? It's because our rebellion against God has made this world futile to the point where even creation groans for it to be made right. So that was the second question. Here's the third question. I want to ask of our uh, ask of our passage and that is how do we obtain this hope how do we obtain this hope i'm going to go back to verse 23 and it says and and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies and then verse 24 goes on to say for in this hope we were saved so what we've got here, well, how do we obtain this hope? Well, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. And then it says something really interesting. It explains what that is, the redemption of our bodies. There it is. It's, it's, it's a little bit hidden and, and, the, and the words are just a little bit uh, are using different phrases. But the redemption of our bodies is our resurrection. When, our, when we will be resurrected just like Christ was, and we will, uh, we will uh, share in the resurrection. How, how do we obtain this hope? For, for, in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. How do we obtain this hope? We obtain this hope in the resurrection. The very thing that we're, we're celebrating today on Resurrection Sunday, we obtain this hope through the resurrection. Jesus accomplished this great hope when he rose from the dead it's been said many times but the resurrection is the absolute linchpin for christianity if the resurrection didn't happen then christianity is an absolute farce if the resurrection didn't happen then we have no hope but the resurrection did happen jesus did rise from the dead and so here we go how do we obtain this hope jesus resurrection is the only thing that we can hope in to be saved to this future glory Jesus' resurrection is the only thing we can hope in 
to be saved to this future glory. You see, death and suffering, that, that used to be something bad. So death used to be a curse. Suffering used to be a curse. But for the Christian now, death is a gateway. Death is a gateway into eternal life. For the Christian, suffering is a purifying process where we become more and more like Christ and it makes us turn us more and more towards the hope that we have. Interesting, I love the fact that in verse 22, uh, Paul says that, uh, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I love the fact that he uses those words, birth pains. Notice that he doesn't use death throes. He's not saying the world is in its death throes. No, the world is in birth pains. Now that is a massive difference. They're still both are painful. But there is an incredible amount of difference in that. If you go into, uh, into a hospital ward and you hear a scream, it makes a massive difference as to what ward you're in. For most of the hospitalists, a scream is something that's pretty terrible. But if you're in the birthing unit and you hear a scream, you realize that there's some pain going on there, but you realize something amazing is going to come out of that pain that has been uh, endured there at the, at the time. One is despair, the other one is hope. It's amazing that Paul uses the words birth pains and not death throes. I think we sometimes we look at the world and the, what, what's happening around the world, and it can be our tendency to look at the world and think, oh, it's all going down the, the gurgler. The, this world is, is, is coming to an end. This world is, uh, is being ruined and this world, is, it's all being wrapped up and it feels like it's in its death throes. Paul says no, it's in its birth pains, which means we're just getting going. It means that what, but what is to come is actually the beginning. We're, we're not heading towards an end, we're heading towards a beginning, a new beginning. One is despair, the other is hope. And that hope is all because of Jesus' resurrection. That hope is all because of Jesus' resurrection. Now, now so I, I guess we have to then ask that, because it's pretty easy just for those, again, for those words to flow out of someone's mouth. The hope that we have is all because of Jesus' resurrection. We need to uh, dig into that a little bit. How can we say this? How can we say that our hope is all because of Jesus' resurrection? Well, here we go. We can say that this hope is all because of Jesus' resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. Now, because we are united with Jesus, because we are united with Christ, we also will rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. That's the only reason that we have hope. Jesus' resurrection obtains it for both him, of that hope for him, and because we are united with him, it obtains it for us. Because when we die, we will rise from the dead and we will also ascend to heaven. The only reason, the only reason that we will be able to stand in heaven before God and be admitted to heaven is not because we will be good enough. The Bible is clear that we're not going to be good enough. The only reason is that we're going to be able to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. And that's, and that's the only reason that we will be admitted to, to heaven. For Colossians 1.27, we talked about this about this time last year a lot. Colossians 1.27 describes it, this. He, uh, Paul says that this idea of Christ in you is the hope of glory. Can we see how that, why that would be? 
the Christ in us, that because we are united with Christ, that's our only hope for the future glory. Jesus rose from the dead and, will, and ascended to heaven, and so we too will rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. Now, there is another side to that, though. There is another side to that. And that other side is that if you are not united with Jesus, then you don't have this hope of a future glory. And what I mean by that is if you have not come to the place in your life where you have realized that you are a sinner before God and that you have no hope of, of this future glory of heaven and living with God in paradise forever because your sin has separated you from God. If you haven't come to the point of realizing that and realizing that you need to fall before Jesus and, uh, and ask for his forgiveness, the forgiveness that he achieved on the cross and we celebrated that two days ago on good friday if you haven't come to that place and placed your faith in jesus for the forgiveness of your sin then you are not united with jesus you're not united with christ and so this future hope it, it, it isn't yours so can i can i implore you that today you you don't finish up here without placing your faith in Jesus and just asking for Jesus to remove that sin from your life and, to, and to, for you to be uh, united with Jesus. The Bible talks about that, about Jesus coming in and dwelling inside us and his spirit dwelling inside us so that we're united with him and so that you will have this future hope. And if you want to do that now, if you need to do that now, you can press pause on the live stream um, and, and just spend five minutes just praying and asking God and uh, for that and, and just confessing your sin to him and asking for him to take that sin out of your life and for him to and for Jesus to indwell you for his spirit to indwell you you can pause anytime spend five minutes doing that or whatever if you press play afterwards you'll pick up exactly in the same spot but I, can I encourage you to do that today all right so that's how we then obtain our hope Jesus resurrection is the only thing that we can hope in to be saved to this future glory. So the fourth question, the last question here is what does this hope give us? Uh, what does it mean for us? How does it, uh, what does it mean for us? And, uh, and even as we ask this question, I'm going to see if, um, if, if Jack can put the, the, the text number up on the top of the screen um, just in a moment. Uh, and, and so you can feel free uh, if, you, if you like. We are going to have the, uh, the Q&A uh, time so you can um, text through your questions through to that number there. We will open the chat for questions as well, uh, but you might want to use the, the text number. If the chat gets uh, a little bit unruly, um, if there's a whole lot of visitors, uh, then we might just have to close that down uh, quickly again. But, uh, but the, uh, the, the text number hopefully is there pretty soon. So the fourth question, though, we want to ask. So remember these, uh, the, the three questions that we've asked. What do we hope for? Why do we need hope? How do we obtain this hope? And this fourth question is, what does this hope give us? And here it is. It gives us the assurance and peace that the current sufferings are all for our good and that the future glory is worth it. It gives us assurance and peace that the current sufferings are all for our good and that the future glory is worth it. And you can have a look at both verse 18 right at the beginning of our passage, but also verses 28 through 30 to, to have a look at that. I want to uh, read one verse particularly though that really helps uh, and, and I think really helps a lot of Christians in times of trouble 
That's Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things for our good. And that future glory is worth whatever we're going through here. So when you're feeling overwhelmed by the futility of the world, verse 25 tells us that we just wait in patience. Wait for this future glory. When the world events seem to be crushing in on you, then what we do is we fall back on the hope that we have, this hope that we have. We know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and we know that that will be ours too and we have this future hope. A hope that allows us to have peace and joy in the hard times and perhaps even to delight in the Lord in hard times. Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us to do exactly that. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We just read verse 28 in Romans 8. What does this hope give us? It gives us a knowledge that what we're going through is for our good. If you've got kids or kids, if you've ever been to the, to the doctor and the doctor tells you or your parents tell you that uh, for whatever's gone wrong, maybe you're sick and, this, and the, you have to take this medicine and maybe this medicine is really terrible. Uh, or maybe you've broken a bone or something and you have to go to the hospital and the operations that they do, they're, they're really painful. But we trust our parents, we trust the doctors, we, we know that the, these medicines or these operations that they're doing, they're for our good. And we also know that what God is doing in our lives is for our good. So let's not waste what God is taking us through at the moment. The times that we're walking through should make us eagerly desire a future glory. The times that we're walking through should make us delight in the Lord and his goodness. The times that we're walking through should make us give thanks that Jesus' resurrection brings us the assurance of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we just want to say thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you that that you have accomplished so much in those three days from dying on the cross on what we remember as Good Friday through to, the, through to being resurrected again on the first day of the week on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday. We thank you that we can celebrate that this, uh, today. We thank you that, that that resurrection that you achieved the resurrection that you achieved that then gives us this amazing future hope of glory. A future hope that we, we just can't wrap our minds around at the moment. And so we just thank you and we praise you that, uh, that you have got such a, a fantastic plan, Father. We trust you that your plan is good. We trust you that you are working things, all these things together for our good. And we trust you that this future glory will make all these things that have gone on in our lives they would just fade off into the background like birth pains just fading into a distant memory when we see the, the glory that has been birthed out of these birth pains. Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes on, on those things, on those future glories as we walk through a time here now of difficulty, a time for many of some quite real suffering, uh, some quite real hardship. We just ask that, uh, that your hope that the hope that you've achieved will give us this assurance and this peace and it's in jesus name that we pray all these things amen
All right. Well, so uh, now if you're able to um, open up that that chat again, and we've got a few moments to uh, to have a, a question or two, um, I'll uh, I'll keep an eye on the on the text phone. I think we might have one that uh, that might have popped in. All right. Here's a really interesting question, digging into the the sovereignty of God. So, uh, the question is: So God created Adam and Eve so that he could put the world into a futile state. Was that his plan before creation? Was that his plan before creation? Well, we have to ask a couple of qu- uh, extra questions to dig into that then. So w- do, is God om, uh, omni- omniscient? Does he know everything? And I think the answer that we hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, answer to that, or the, the answer that we give is yes, God knows absolutely everything. So when he created this world, no matter what your idea of, uh, of, of predestination or, or any of those kind of uh, maybe hot button topics, when God created the world and he created it in such a, such a way that he created Adam and Eve with their uh, free will to either, either do right or do wrong, when God created the world like that, did he know that Adam and Eve were going to sin and then for the, for the path to happen? He is omniscient. He does know all. So yes, he knew that. So then we have to say that God created Adam and Eve with the idea that and with the plan that they were going to fall, that they were going to sin and uh, the world was going to be put into a futile state and we have to we have, to have a concept of God that allows us to, to put that in, in one category here and realize in a second category that all of, that, all of his plan there must be for the greatest purpose of all. He, no doubt God could have made it in a, in a different way. He, he could have made it so that Adam and Eve never sinned and that we were all born in that amazing Garden of Eden and of course Adam and Eve were supposed to expand the garden and let the garden essentially have dominion over the entire world. So this whole world was supposed to be this beautiful Garden of Eden uh, uh, in terms of the plan that, go- that God gave to Adam and Eve. But, he, but God obviously knew that that plan of, of us being in that paradise forever from the beginning wasn't as good as a plan of us starting in that paradise and then us losing that paradise, going into this period of futility and then restoring a paradise even greater and a future glory that's, that's far surpassing the weight of the suffering that, uh, that we have here. So a good question, was that his plan before creation, I think the, the, the sovereignty of God and God's omniscience has to tell us that, yes, that was his plan before creation. And that plan was the best plan because God is good and God is loving and God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Uh, but thanks for, for that question. Um, I'll give it just a moment or two uh, in order to get another, uh, another question or two to come in. All right, so we've got a question there. Um, and just saying, didn't the fall happen because of Adam and Eve's free will rather than God's plan for it to happen? They could have chosen to obey God. Good question, good point. And in terms of that, that idea of, um, of free will, which is another hot button topic that we're probably not going dig, to dig into all the layers of, but I would, I would say that Adam and Eve absolutely had, had free will. Probably unlike unlike any other human being uh, that, that ever followed because Adam and Eve had a, 
had an unfallen nature. They had a, they had a perfect nature. Um, and they had an unstained nature. We all have a fallen nature. And so while we have the ability to choose one thing or another, we know that we are going to sin. We, we, there's almost no, uh, I, I guess in one sense, there's one, no choice in that because we, that our nature just means that we will sin. But Adam and Eve were different. So could they have chosen to obey God? And the answer is yes. They could have chosen to obey God. Absolutely. And yet, again, no matter what your idea of predestination or, or the likes is, God created Adam and Eve knowing that in their free will, they would choose to disobey. And so, uh, and so we have this idea that bo both Adam and Eve chose to do it, but yet God knew that they were going to do it. And it was his plan for this then to happen all, all, all through it. Can I give you an analogy? that might help when we're, when we're thinking about this idea of the, the idea that, um, that Adam and Eve or, or humanity chooses, um, uh, uh, but God is still sovereign. I think it was John Frame that, that gave this analogy in, uh, initially, and I'm going to struggle with my um, Shakespearean literature here. Sorry if I, uh, if I mess it up. The, uh, the characters in the play Othello, the Shakespearean uh, play Othello, uh, there is a character there who commits a murder. I believe he commits uh, a murder and he, and he uh, murders the king. Uh, and I'm struggling to remember that guy's name. Perhaps the, the, the name of the character was Duncan. But let's, for, the, for, the sake of, uh, for the sake of the argument, let's call him Duncan. Now Duncan, what he did in, the, in, in this uh, play Othello, he murdered the king. Maybe the king's name was Duncan. Anyway, Duncan murdered the king. And, uh, and, and so what happened in that play is that a murder happened and so the question we have to ask is, is should Duncan be held responsible for that murder? And the, and the, and the answer is absolutely. In the setting of Othello, in the, in the narrative of that, of that play, he committed a murder and so should, he should be held responsible. Now, but there's a bigger question. Who authored the play? Well, Shakespeare authored the play, didn't he? So on one level, we have that Duncan acting in the, in the play of Othello is completely responsible for what he did. And yet there is a, what you might call a sovereignty over the, the play of Othello that Shakespeare has because he wrote the whole thing. I think it's, a, it's not a perfect analogy. No analogy is perfect, but I think it's a helpful analogy when we realize that in this, in this world, Adam and Eve are responsible for their sin. We're uh, responsible for our choices, the good that we do, the bad that we do. And yet over top of it, in a way that we don't understand, in a way that we can't comprehend, we will one day, that God is sovereign and he is writing the course of history and He is, uh, and, and it, it's his plan that is happening over, over top of everything. So hopefully that is a, um, is a help in terms of just putting together that, that, uh, the sovereignty idea with um, uh, Adam and Eve having free choice and also perhaps us having... Um, a free choice. All right. Now, the la one last question before we uh, go into into a time of communion. Um, one last question. We uh, some are feeling a loss of identity away from work. Any tips for re realigning our identity in Christ? Well, I think I, I think you've kind of hit the um, uh, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there to a point. Um, this loss that we are feeling from, uh, from, I guess, from being away from work or being away from even social circles or, or being away from spheres of influence oftentimes, 
we sometimes start to feel a loss of identity. Uh, we see that uh, uh, oftentimes, particularly when, um, and it is a, a possibly a little bit more of a male thing than a female thing, when a, 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 when a man loses his, his job, he can feel a loss of I- identity there. Um, and, and so what that underlies though, is, a, uh, is perhaps what the Bible calls uh, an idol, an idol of the heart. And what, so what we need to be, what, how do we need to realign there or how can we re- realign? We need to realign and just uh, be, be conscious of the idea and, and be, uh, be re, I guess, recommitting ourselves daily that there is nothing that matters in this world compared to, now compared to is an important word, compared to our life in Christ. Okay. So there's nothing, that com- there's nothing that's important in this world compared to our life in Christ. There are important things in this world. Family's important, uh, work is important, all these things are important, but nothing that compares to our life in Christ. And so daily we need to be uh, spending time just coming back to, the, back to our relationship with Jesus, spending time with him and realizing that, that the world can do what it wants. The world could, uh, could, could even take this life from me in terms of murder or whatever it might be, but I have Christ. And that is all that ultimately matters. Um, And because I have a hope, I have a future hope that is incomparable to anything in this world. And so just like like there is an incomparability between, and I'm not sure if that's a word, sorry, but there's an incomparability between the current sufferings and the future glory, there's also no comparison between the current good things like work, family, uh, all these things that we enjoy. There's there's no comparison between those good things and the future hope that we uh, enjoy. So I think that we, we just need to continue to put our minds back on Christ and realize that he is everything that we need and he is everything that we, uh, he is sufficient in our life, both, uh, both in our personal life and, uh, and also because of, uh, because of uh, the future that we, that we have in Christ. Sorry, I hope that was, uh, I hope that was helpful. I hope you've enjoyed this morning. Uh, what we're going to do, I'm just going to uh, pray to finish up. And we've got another song that you can just listen to uh, along the way. It's a little bit more upbeat. And I hope you enjoy that as well. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, just the blessings of uh, just being able to remember your faithfulness in sending Jesus to, to die for us and your faithfulness and not holding him there in the tomb. Um, and not holding him there at a at a place in a in a state of being cursed, but you you rose him from the dead, and you ascended him to heaven, and he now sits at your right hand, and he is preparing a place for us, a glorious place, uh, which allows us to have a, a, a just a beautiful and wonderful hope. A future hope of glory that is just unsurpassed and unfathomable and things that in a way that we just can't imagine even now. So we just thank you that we've been able to reflect on that this morning. We thank you that the, that the resurrection of Jesus is the absolute central point of our, uh, of our faith and of our um, just absolute assurance of, of us being uh, destined for an eternity 
of beauty in paradise with you. So we thank you for all these wonderful concepts, wonderful ideas. We pray that you just look after us as we head out from here uh, and as we continue on our Easter weekend. I pray that you would allow us to enjoy that uh, with whatever and whoever is around us and that you would uh, just continue to carry us through this time, this difficult time, this unusual time, and that you would continue to uh, uh, just bless us as a church. I pray that you continue to look after us as a nation and as a and as a planet, Lord. So we yeah we give you thanks for all these things that we've been able to enjoy this morning, and it's in Jesus' wonderful and saving and resurrected name. Amen.